Okay, uh, we're going to move into our, our time of study now. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, then turn to the book of First Peter, chapter 5. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 5 this morning. We did the first part of it last week. We'll, uh, we'll read the first few verses again in a moment, just to remind ourselves. But uh, let's just, just stra- jump straight into the text. The first seven verses of chapter 5 really deal with order in the church. Verses 8 through 9 uh, present this ever-present danger. We're going to be looking at that in a while. Uh, and verse 10, interestingly, gives us what could be described as the purpose of suffering. Lots of people ask, you know, why is there suffering in the world? Particularly non-believers, they don't, can't understand why a God who is good, who is loving, would allow suffering. Peter has a really interesting answer to that question, and we'll look at that in a while. Uh, and then the final four verses or so, uh, just deal with those final salutations as Peter sends his greetings. That's where we're going uh, to to look this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 5, so this is where we kind of left off last week. Uh, it starts, likewise... You younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, we've got to start with that first word there, likewise. That, that's where we need to start and understand what Peter's saying to us, because he's building on what he's already said. So we need to have, just review that in a second. He's saying in like manner, or in just the same way, So the argument he's about to make is built on what he's just said. Now, let's just review what he said in those first four verses. It was, this is what we studied uh, for our time last week. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but as examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now, this again is that portion we looked at last week. It's really an encouragement, uh, 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 just a, a statement of how leaders of churches should be Uh, and the primary responsibility clearly is laid out there and we looked at this in detail last week which is to feed the flock of God but the point that Peter's going to build on is that third verse there neither is being lords over God's heritage but being in samples or examples to the flock is a really important statement that's where Peter draws now a likewise from so he's saying in the same manner in the same way as it is for your pastors for your elders elders he says don't try to be above your station that's really a a a paraphrase of what peter's saying here he's saying to the leaders in the churches you know understand your position in christ you know don't don't try and lord it over the flock don't try and make this your thing you know they are god's heritage is what peter's told us so it's understanding your position and then in the same way he now turns to the congregation effectively and says the same thing another way we could put it is don't have delusions of grandeur um i believe it's paul that makes a statement don't think of yourself more highly than you ought uh again uh scripture uh and know your place really uh and then he addresses it the, this this statement he says to you younger so likewise just as those in positions of leadership and uh, responsibility within the church the elders the pastor typically should understand their position that they are serving christ so 
you younger within the fellowship, submit yourselves unto the elders. Now, it's interesting the word that he uses for younger. It's a Greek word, uh, neos, and it actually means recently born. Now, obviously, it can be used of somebody who is younger in terms of age, but specifically in the context, it's speaking of maturity, spiritual maturity. So it's not just people who are younger. It's actually people who have not been a Christian as long, people who are still journeying, who are learning, who are growing. Of course, we all are in that sense. But it's specifically addressed to those within a fellowship, those within a body of believers um, who are younger in the faith. And the encouragement here is that just as pastors and leaders need to submit and understand their place in God's will, their position, so the younger spiritually within a fellowship need to submit themselves to those who are spiritually over them or older than them in the Lord. Notice this word submit. Why does Peter use this word? Well, actually, if you've noticed as we've been going through, Peter's used this repeatedly. It's that word uh, hypotasso uh, in the Greek, and he's used it throughout this study, uh, throughout his first epistle, because he's told us that we should submit to government and authority. That we should submit to our boss, those who we work for, whom we're employed by. Um, he's using the kind of the, the idea of slaves and masters, but to us, it's, it's bosses and employees. We should, you know, for the wives are to submit to their husbands. Uh, and now in the church, he uses the same expression, says that the younger spiritually are to submit to those who are over them spiritually. Uh, in other words, to, to get under the mission, that word submit, we understand the word sub prefixing a word means under a submarine is under the water and so on. So to submit means to get underneath and it really means to support That's the idea of submission. The world has got a kind of twisted view of what submission means. It's not the way that it's used in scripture. So it's not really uh, having your own agenda, your own ideas and trying to promote that. It's being willing to get under the mission, to get under those who are in spiritual authority. That's the, the, the statement that really Peter's making here. So again, submitting yourself to those who are spiritually older uh, in you, than you. Uh, and again, as I said, this is to do with spiritual maturity, not age. And we need to highlight, of course, that Paul admonished Timothy not to let people think little of him because he was young. So it's not about age. It's about maturity. You may have somebody who is in their, their 80s who's just come to know the Lord. You might have somebody who's 18 who has known the Lord since the, the, they were a child. You know, so it's not just about age, it's about how, how much you've grown in grace and your understanding, and of course how much the word has permeated your life. Of course, if you, if you are in the word, if you're reading the word, if you're studying the word, it changes you from the inside out. It changes the way that you, you think, that you, the way you deal with challenges and problems and issues that you face. And again, remember that Peter, in sharing all of the things that he's speaking about here, he's sharing firsthand the the things that he'd experienced. He'd seen people close to him clamoring for position. And interestingly enough, this is actually one occasion where Peter seems to have been on the right side. Normally, Peter was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. uh, As we read through the Gospels, he made mistake after mistake. That's one of the reasons, in a sense, I think we can relate to Peter. We love Peter so much because we just see ourselves in him. Uh, You know, James, we studied a little while back. um, It's almost with James and Peter, kind of good cop, bad cop type of idea. James is very direct, very, you must live like this. This is how you should live because, whereas... With Peter, 
You know, you get the idea that it's coming from a heart that he knew he'd made mistakes. He knew that he let the Lord down. He even denied the Lord, you know, and yet we see these instructions that he brings. So on the basis of that, let's look at some scriptures where Peter would have had firsthand experience of the challenges that occurred amongst the disciples of those clamoring for position, looking to be something that they maybe weren't ready to be or hadn't been called to be at that stage. In Luke 22, Verse 24 through 26, we read this. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that does serve. Great instructional comments from our Lord himself. You know, but clearly it says that there was strife among them. You know, they, they wanted to be number one. They wanted to be the biggest, the best, the greatest, the most important. In Luke 9, a little bit earlier than this, uh, in Luke 9, 46 to 48, we read this. Then there arose a murm- uh, sorry, a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. So this wasn't just a once only event. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receives him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Similar instruction, but a different occasion. And then in Mark's gospel, we have this account where, again, Peter would no doubt have been aware of this because it caused a little bit of a friction amongst the disciples. And we read, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shalt do is for us whatsoever we should desire. Well, that's quite an arrogant statement in itself. Um, but they go on. And he said unto them, what would you that I do should do for you? And they said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Now, you know, Jesus' response and so on, that it's not his place to give. But he makes a promise to them that the father will uh, bless them. They will get to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Interestingly, that is a a verse that demands the the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. It demands that Jesus return and rule over the earth. So those that have uh, amillennial perspectives and try and deny that Jesus will return physically or deny that Israel should have a place, they, they have a real problem with this verse because this is a clear promise. Jesus couldn't have made this promise unless it was speaking of that which would come. You can't give somebody a virtual present, an allegorical present. It means nothing. This is a promise that Jesus makes to the disciples. But the point here that we're trying to make is that James and John come again, looking to be something, looking to have some sort of position. Of course, you're familiar also in Luke 14 uh, with this parable. Uh, He put forth a parable to those uh, which were bidden when uh, he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and him that come and say uh, to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go up and sit down in the lowest room. And uh, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shall thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. Very clear, very simple lesson that Jesus gives. 
Don't try and promote yourself. Don't try uh, and look for that higher position. Don't just assume some right or entitlement because in doing that, you'll end up being humbled. Jesus says how we should be as his followers. And Peter is going to build on this kind of idea now. But I just want you just for a second, consider some biblical examples of people that pushed themselves forward, that wanted a position that wasn't theirs or either they weren't ready for it or that God hadn't called them to it. Korah, of course, in the Old Testament, challenged Moses, basically said to Moses, look, you're taking too much upon yourself. You, you, you've taken on this position uh, and so on. Well, you know, if you read the text, it didn't work out all that well for him. And in fact, we find that him and his compatriots, the earth opened up and swallowed them. We could also recount the situation with Aaron and even with Miriam. Uh, who stood against Moses and challenged again the fact that he was making, in a sense, the decisions leading the nation. Well, it didn't work out so well for them either. Well, another example would be the tribe of Dan. Dan wanted more than they had been given. When Joshua allotted the land and they moved into the land, uh, game recorded in the book of Joshua, Dan weren't happy with the portion they'd been given by the sea. They wanted something more than that. And actually, the land they'd been given was a reasonable portion, reasonable size. They ended up taking a piece of land at the top of Israel as well. And hence, we have that expression often from Dan to Beersheba, the north to the south. Beersheba was in the south. Dan typically became representative of the whole tribe, but it was in the north. So Dan ends up with two portions of land. But interestingly enough, because they took that northern portion, they, they weren't content with the boundaries that God had set for them they ended up moving into and falling into idolatry they started to embrace the worship of the cultures and the gods and the, the nations around them that serve false gods it's a great great lesson you know if we don't respect and acknowledge the boundaries that God has set for us we will fall into idolatry and, and you can chart through history when people have done that it always leads to the same thing God has given us some very clear boundaries in life in terms of relationships and all sorts of things that we could consider and we're not going to go down that road this morning and look at those things but many many things where God has set the boundaries be content with the boundaries that God has set because the blessing will come in that which God gives not which you go and try and claim for yourself Saul would be another example uh, who tried to take on more responsibility. He tried to take on the role of the priest uh, and ended up losing the kingdom as a result. You know, remember, this idea of submitting is not to say that the government is always right. It's not to say that your boss is already right. This is what Peter's already been alluding to. You know, Peter's already told you that you might be treated unjustly by your boss, but you're to patiently endure suffering as it is glorifying to God. You see, this is a big part of the, the picture that Peter's painting for us now. Firstly, don't try and assume something that's not yours. But secondly, remember that by being patient, by waiting on the Lord, you're doing that which is glorifying to him. You know, wives again are to submit to their husbands. Yeah, and, and it's, they're not to, sub, uh, to um, subvert their husband's position or authority. You know, and again, it's not because husbands always get it right. And any wife will tell you that we don't get it always right. In fact, we often get it wrong. But the wives are to submit, and Peter makes this clear, because of the sake of the order that God has created. I mean, just, you know, consider the, the situation with the train. You know, if you have a train, you know, and you've got a, a carriage that's in the middle or, or toward the end of the train, and it tries to get in front of the carriages ahead, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to cause all sorts of problems. If that carriage isn't content with its place, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. The whole train is going to derail. Yeah, and there could even be casualties as a result of that. 
train can only run along the track safely if all the carriages remain in their place and then all the passengers get to their destination think of the body of christ in that kind of context yeah and remember what paul tells titus and timothy that those that are desiring a position of leadership should also be able to manage their own homes well yeah and if you can't do that if you can't love your wife and give her the honor she deserves if you can't be a godly example to your children letting them see your love for God, your patience, your peace in the midst of a crisis or a challenge. If they can't see your Christ-like lifestyle, well, then don't be looking for more responsibility yet. A lot of people in the history of the church have clamoured for position, clamoured for recognition or whatever, and their own homes aren't right yet. They haven't got their own lives spiritually sorted. And so what happens is as they start to try and take responsibility for the flock of God, for the church, all sorts of problems occur because they haven't learned the basics. You know, it's interesting, you know, you look at the likes of Jesus who spent 30 years effectively in training for three years in ministry. It's been said many a time that today people spend uh, three uh, years in training for 30 years in ministry. It's kind of gone the other way around. You know, you think of people like Moses. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning, waiting, he thought he was ready. Do you remember he went out and tried to, to liberate Israel, to set Israel free? He starts to take on Egypt all by himself. And he kills an Egyptian soldier who was harshly treating one of the Israelis, one of the Jews that were there. Well, as a result, he ends up having to flee. It wasn't God's timing. It wasn't his calling at that point. He was in a training program and he tried to jump out of that too early. He ends up spending thir- another 40 years, rather, in the, 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 the deserts of Midian. And the backside of the desert, he's there, and God meets him at the burning bush. And when Moses has kind of come to the end of himself, he's like, I don't want to do this anymore, God. God says, right, now you're ready. Now you're ready to go and do this. Now that pride, that, that arrogance in your own heart is gone. It's been broken. Now I can use you. Now you've come to a place where you're dependent upon me. Now I can use you. Now, let me say again, in the context of what we're saying this morning or what Peter's saying, it does apply specifically to the order within a church. But these things are applicable to us in our lives, too. You know, you may not be content with what God's given you at the moment. You may want more, but wait for God. Wait for his timing. Don't try and jump ahead. Remember the situation with Abraham, you know, and with Sarah. Sarah goes to to Abraham and God's given us his promise, but he's not working out and it's taking too long. Let's see if we can help God out. Didn't go all that well, did it? In fact, that decision that Sarah and Abraham made together led to a history of challenges and problems for the Jewish people, for the children of Israel, for Abraham's descendants. You know, from the the point that Ishmael was born and then subsequently um, um, uh, um, Isaac, there you go, apologies, brain freeze. Uh, From the point that Isaac then is born, there's this conflict between the two of them. And Ishmael starts persecuting um, Isaac. And, and we see that through history. We see that contention continue. You know, so when we try and jump ahead, when we try and take something that's not ours, it may be that it's not ours yet. But when we try and take it too early, it doesn't work out all that well, does it? Scripture tells us that we shouldn't despise the day of small beginnings. And, you know, I remember in my my walk with the Lord, my ministry early on, really feeling that the Lord was calling me into a, a ministry where I'd be given the opportunity to teach. 
I started off, I um, when I was uh, about 13, I got in my first band. I used to drum. Uh, it was a Christian band with some friends of mine. They were all quite a bit older than I was. Um, but they'd asked me to come and drum. And I thought, you know, if we're going to go out as a Christian band with the purpose of evangelizing, talking to people about the Lord, I kind of need to know what I'm saying. And so I started reading the Bible. I started when I was 13. It was the first year I read my Bible all the way through. And I just continued year on year. And as I was learning more, I just got to the point, I wanted to share it with other people. And I started seeing, you know, the Lord open up small little opportunities, but I wanted more. And I got kind of frustrated at times that God wasn't giving me bigger opportunities. I couldn't speak to more people. But, you know, the Lord was very gracious and the Lord allowed me to go through a very slow, gradual training program. And you realize as you look back how important that was. You know, if you try and do something too quickly, generally speaking, you don't appreciate the benefits of it. If you just get given something, you don't have the same appreciation of its value as if you've had to earn and save up and and work towards something. You know, so so this is something we see throughout Scripture. This kind of idea. Just think about again that that train example. You know, every carriage in the train is important. It's not to say that if you're not the pastor of a church or if you're not one of the elders that you don't have a role. And Paul makes it very clear that actually the whole body is important. In fact, some of the parts we don't often think about are the most important parts. So it's not about status. We're all equal in God's eyes. We're all in the same position in terms of we all are sinners saved by grace and needing a savior. You know, it's very simple. But God does have different roles and he calls us to serve him in different ways. But we need to understand that every part is there to do its share. Not every carriage can be up front of the train. And, you know, not being up front doesn't make the carriages further down the train of less important. Every part is there to do its job. You know, think of, again, I mentioned about parents and the responsibility that God gives to parents. It's, it's really important that we understand that that is an important ministry in itself. You know, you can have a ministry within a church, but if your ministry at home isn't right, if you haven't got that right godly approach and attitude towards your children, then that is going to have serious impact on the way they grow up and what they learn of Jesus Christ. I just want to read you a quick quote from an American preacher by the name of Paul Washer. Some of you may have heard of him. He said this, Your children will go to public school, and they'll be trained for somewhere around 15,000 hours in ungodly secular thought. And then they'll go to Sunday school, and they'll colour a picture of Noah's Ark. And you think that's going to stand against the lies that they're being told? Now, I praise God that we have a Sunday school here that is teaching our children the word of God. But that quote is so true. You know, it's such a real situation that for so many children, they're not getting spiritual input from home. And all they're getting is this worldly influence. And we expect things are going to turn out all right. No, no, we have a really important role to do. So my point here is don't be looking for something that God hasn't given you yet. We have all been given incredible responsibilities in our homes, with our families, with our parents, if they're not believers, with our unbelieving relatives. You know, we've all got a field of ministry. We've all got opportunity to serve the Lord. So don't be clamoring for something that the Lord either hasn't given you, is not going to give you, or just hasn't given you yet. We're going to the second part of this verse. Uh, and we're told here that we are to be subject to one another. Now, this, and this isn't just now about the younger submitting to the older. This is now all of us within a fellowship, all of us, uh, to be subject one to another. So th- immediately Peter just removes this idea of hierarchy or rank or anything else. We're all one. Sadly, we know that from the time of Constantine onwards, from about 300 AD, the church embraced 
or was allowed to use the secular, the pagan venues, the great buildings that they had to their gods. And, and, and paganism almost gets outlawed as Christianity becomes now the dominant, dare I say, religion of the Roman Empire. But the problem was not only did the Christians start to use these great buildings, but they started to adopt some of the pagan practices. And one of those practices was that you would typically have a priesthood which would be elevated or above the congregation. It's why in many churches you today, you see at the front, there's a raised portion at the front. It's not just about visibility. It's about seniority and so on. It's about rank. It's about position. And that came from the, the pagan cults of the, 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 the second, third, fourth centuries. You know, and even prior to that, going all the way back to Babylon. You know, so there's a lot of ideas that are kind of crept into the church that are so uh, misaligned with what scripture teaches. Jesus made it clear. We read that quote earlier about humility. And now Peter builds on that idea himself and says that we should be clothed with humility. I love that statement. It's interesting if you do a study on clothing in scripture, there's, there's a lot of instructive things that come out of that, a number of spiritual lessons. Firstly, clothing is there to protect us. You know, it's really important to understand that clothing isn't just about covering up our nakedness. It's actually there to provide a level of protection. In fact, originally in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were clothed with the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. When through sin, that glory left them, God graciously clothed them with the skins of animals. Now, there was a lot to that, but it was also partly for protection. You know, if we're going to be clothed with humility, we should understand and realize that, that humility is there for our protection too. But notice also that that clothing is that which other people see when they look at us. They, they see the outward, don't they? The outward appearance. And so humility if we're clothed with it, should be that which other people see when they look at us. You know, to be clothed with humility, as I said, is for our protection that we don't learn to run before we can walk. You know, and that we don't bite off more than we can chew. Uh, that we don't make the same mistake that Paul warned Timothy about when promoting people within the church, when giving people positions and responsibility. And he wants to Paul wants Timothy that you don't promote people too quickly. So you don't certainly promote a novice, somebody who's young in the faith, lest they become puffed up with pride. And as, P, as Paul says to Timothy in First uh, Timothy 3, 6, that they fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Clothing is also that, as I said, which others see. It's that humility that they can see from the outside when they look at us. And they shouldn't see ambition. They shouldn't see pride. They shouldn't see a desire to usurp or gain position over another. That shouldn't exist within a church. We should understand that we've all been called by God. We, we've been given roles that we don't deserve. You know, whatever role we have, we're there to serve each other. When we get to this next section, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of the pastor. Of the elders? No, it's really clear. It says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You know, this is such an important thing, you know, and, and we try of sometimes maybe think that we should humble ourselves under those who have spiritual authority over us. That, that's not what this verse is saying. What you're doing is humbling yourself before God. You're recognizing the position and the place that God has placed you in right now. It's learning to be content with that which you have. You know, and we've been given such an incredible privilege to serve God in any capacity. And we need grace. 
You know, we can only stand by God's grace. And here we're told that if we're going to be beneficiaries of that grace, it's only going to come to the humble. Again, in verse 6, notice that we're told to humble ourselves under the you know, hand of God. So, so important. And God will promote us if it's his will. I just want to read this to you from Oswald Chambers in regard to humility, though. He says this. Get into the habit of examining in the sight of God the things that sound humble before men. And you'll be amazed at how staggeringly, staggeringly impertinent they are. Oh, I should like to say I'm sanctified and not a saint. Say that before God, and it means, no, Lord, it's impossible for you to save and sanctify me. There are chances I have not had. So many imperfections in my brain and body. No, Lord, it isn't possible. That may sound wonderfully humble before men, but before God, it is an attitude of defiance. Again, the things that sound humble before God may sound the opposite before men. To say, thank God, I know I'm saved and sanctified is in the sight of God the acme of humility. It means you have so completely abandoned yourself to God that you know he is true. Never bother your head as to whether what you say sounds humble before men or not, but always be humble before God and let him be all in all. I I love that. The point is that we are to be humble before God, not before others, not even before others in the fellowship. It's before God that that humility should be expressed and as i said a lot of that comes out in the fact that we are content to accept that which god has for us there was a little quote i put up last night i just read it of chuck Mizzle, some of you may have seen it that faith uh, is not um, this belief uh, in that which is not uh, substantiated in fact let me just just bear with me i'm just going to go to the see if i can find that quote because it's such a a pertinent uh, quote uh, let's see if I can see it and find it for you. Yeah, it says, faith is not belief in spite of the evidence. Faith is obedience in spite of the consequences. Let me read that again. Faith is not belief in spite of the evidence. We've got so much evidence. We don't need evidence. We've got overwhelming evidence to prove the Bible is true, to prove that God exists and so on. But faith, real faith, is obedience in spite of the consequences. You know, and whatever situation, whatever circumstance you're in, whatever position you have in life, in the church, whatever, in your family, accept the place that God has given you. That's where we need to exercise faith, that God is in complete control. And that which he's called us to is according to his perfect will, his perfect plan for us. This verse then goes on. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And then it says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 55 uh, that Peter's drawing back to. Peter knew scripture very, very well. Uh, you know, uh, he, he's often looked at as being somebody who was, uh, or certainly the Jewish leadership spoke of him as being untrained and uneducated, but he knew scripture. And of course, he'd been with Jesus. This verse, though, is often a verse we quote, and it's a great kind of verse for the week type verse. You cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's a true statement. We can take it at face value. That's it. Cast your care upon him. Literally throw your care. Just just, just shovel it all on the Lord because he cares for you. All right. Psalm 55 tells us that he will never permit the righteous to be moved. He'll never allow us to fall. It's a great psalm, Psalm 55, worth reading. Um, but notice the context of this. The Lord, oh, so Peter here, the Lord through Peter is teaching us that we should show humility, that we should submit to each other, that the spiritually younger members of the congregation need to submit to those that are elder, that we should all submit and serve each other. 
And then he says, humble yourselves and lead straight into cast your care. It implies that often the care that we have is because we're not content with what we've got. There's a frustration that I'm better than this. I deserve more than this or or I don't deserve that. You know, uh, that's, uh, and I think in that context, that's where Peter and how Peter uses this quote from Psalm 55, that we find ourselves frustrated by things that we don't think are right or fair. And Peter says, look, cast your care upon him. Just don't become burdened with these things. Learn to trust him. Notice what he says, for he cares for you. God is interested in every part of your life that you would grow in knowledge and in grace. And God is not going to put you in a position that you're not ready for, either within your family, for example, or in your workplace or relationships or within the church. Then we're told, again, let's get the context of this, because there's another one of those great verse for the weeks. We can quote it and it applies, but let's get the context of what Peter's saying. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour all right so we need to get the context that satan is going to use the frustrations that we sometimes experience because of the lot that we've been dealt and he'll use that as a mechanism to try and trip us up he's like a roaring lion just a a a, 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 just a irritating noise in a sense uh that just won't be quiet in our ears he walks around seeking whom he may devour he's looking for any way which he can mess up our lives notice this statement be sober it's a again it's a different greek word than has been used in first peter 4 7 uh, and here it means to be watchful to be circumspect you know to be aware that satan will try and trip you up be ready for these things and notice again from what peter's saying this will often come in the form of being discontent it's one of satan's great tools that he uses he puts us in a place where we're not happy with what we have the position we have of course satan is real He's bitter, malignant, he's resourceful, but we're told that we should refuse him and his place and he flees. Okay, that, that's, that's what we're to do. You know, it could also be a, a veiled reference here from Peter to the lions of Nero uh, in the Colosseum as Christians were starting to be uh, persecuted and those kind of things were happening. Maybe Peter aligns that and sees that Satan was literally doing these things that actually he throws this in there because his readers would have been aware of that as well. I want to read you this quote, though, from Spurgeon. He says this, The fact that we are tempted ought to humble us, for it is sad evidence that there is still sin remaining in us. I believe that the devil is no fool, and that if there is a man or a woman who cannot be tempted, that is, they have no corruption in their nature, depend on it. Satan will not waste much time on his trying to tempt them. He does not waste his time in such a useless exercise. But he says, the person who believes that they are perfect can never pray the Lord's Prayer. They must offer one of their own making, for they will never be willing to say, Lord, or lead me not into temptation. But beloved, because the devil thinks it's worth his time to tempt us, we may conclude that there is something in us that is temptable, that sin still dwells there, in spite of the fact that the grace of God has renewed our hearts. You know, 
we may think that we're we're comfortable and content and so on, but it's very quick for something to occur where we again feel that we've been unjustly treated or that this should have happened or that should, or we should have been given this opportunity. And, and it, it happens within church life just as it does in any, any other aspect. And, and we need to remember, as Paul says, to be content in all things, whatever God has given us. Remember the, the situation I shared about with the tribe of Dan. They weren't content with the boundaries that God had set and they ended up falling into idolatry. So Satan will use every opportunity he can. Again, this verse, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're all going through the same things. We all have the same challenges. In actual fact, we're all in the same training program. And that's why we're going through the same things. God is doing this wonderful work in us of preparing us for eternity. You know, sometimes the challenges we go through, we don't see it in the light of eternity. But actually, Paul in Romans says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with all the, with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, we are going to suffer in this present time. We'll come to this in a minute, what Peter says. But clearly, we're not alone. We're all going through these things together. I'll ask you a question before we look at the next verse. And that is, who wants to be perfect? Who wants to be established? Who wants to be strengthened and who wants to be settled? I mean, that does sound idyllic, doesn't it? That if you could be perfected, if you could be established, strengthened and settled. Well, I think most of us uh, face value would say, yeah, that's, that sounds like a, a nice life to live. But let's look at what Peter says then in verse 10. He says, but the God of all grace, great statement that, but the God of all grace, who has called us, notice it's the Lord that calls us. We don't assume a role. We don't assume a position. The Lord calls us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. Notice what Peter says. Peter says that the Lord will make you perfect. He'll establish you. He'll strengthen you. He'll settle you. But the way to get there it's not a road that most of us would naturally choose. It's a road that will be marked by suffering. It's a road that will be marked by challenges that we hadn't anticipated. It'll, it's a road that will be marked by loss and by pain. But that's the road that the Lord wants us to go down, that we may become perfect, established, strengthened and settled. You know, we have a lot of lessons to learn. And I don't know if you ever stopped to think about it, but from the time of the cross, Every single person that puts their faith and trust in Jesus could go immediately into the presence of the Lord and bypass all the, the stresses and pressures of this life. There's, no, there's nothing here that we have to accomplish or we have to do. We don't have to learn to do something or become uh, sanctified. That's the, the Lord's work anyway. You know, the moment you are saved, you could immediately go to heaven. You know, every one of us, once you become a Christian, you could be immediately raptured. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that that doesn't happen, that the Lord leaves us. Why does the Lord leave us? Why is there this period of time that we have to, we're saved? We're already guaranteed eternity. We've begun our eternal lives. Well, the reason we stay is because God is preparing and building his church. He's preparing us for what is to come. He's training us to be Christ's eternal companion, to be the bride of Christ. And we have many lessons we need to learn. And we learn those through suffering. And sometimes those things come out of that um, frustration of not uh, feeling justified, not feeling we've got what we deserve. This is the lesson that Peter's trying to teach us. 
you know, after a, a while, it, we grow by suffering. You know, that that word perfect just has the idea of being completed. You know, and that, as I said, those present afflictions may indeed be preparation, not just for eternity, but also for ministering to others. I, I'm sure all of us are mature enough in our walk with the Lord to realize that sometimes the things we've gone through will be a blessing to others. You know, the, the year uh, back in 2012, uh, when Joy and myself um, and Marla and Mita at that time was before we had Connie and Sharia, uh, when we traveled from, when we moved from Deal, where we lived in Kent, down to Portsmouth to take on the, the ministry here. That year, um, well, let me just, just back up. Uh, the, when I started in January, I just really sought the Lord as to what to teach. And I really felt the Lord say to me, teach you the book of Job. Uh, and I personally love the book of Job. I think it's a misunderstood book and it's incredible. Uh, the insights you can glean when you study it. Um, but another pastor friend of me told me once, he said, you know, the Lord will make, make you live through the book you're teaching, which in hindsight, I may have chosen a different book. But nevertheless, um, that was what we studied. And during that year, we went through numerous challenges. Amita ended up having nine operations uh, for a dislocated hip um, that wasn't picked up at birth, that was discovered sometime later. Um, and, and we were coming down on Sunday mornings. We were still living deal. It took us a long time to, to get the property uh, where we've moved into. We had a house we found really quickly. And we thought, oh, this is a lot wonderful. The Lord's opening all the, the doors for us. It's like the Red Sea parted. And, and suddenly the house, we were told that the people weren't moving. So then we had to go and look for another place. So we looked for property after property after property, traveling down at weekends and trying to find somewhere. You know, and then we were told the place we'd first seen was back on the market. So we put another offer in. It was accepted. It was all going through. And then, oh, they've changed their mind again. So it was just, uh, that was just a couple of the things, but there were many challenges. In fact, I think Joy and I uh, listed seven different problems, challenges that we faced. And we sat down one night and we were talking through and we were praying through it. And I remember just having this conversation with Joy and saying, you know what? I think the Lord's put us through all of these things that we can be an example to the congregation. Because there were people in the congregation at the time that were going through all sorts of challenges. And they were able to observe our lifestyle. They were able to see that trust that we had in God, even in the midst of those trials. And it was an encouragement to many. And people said that to us at the time. You know, we didn't plan it. We didn't want it. But God used those things. And you need to realize also that the things you go through, you may not even get to see the fruit of it. But God is still working and other people can look on and see the way that you deal with a situation. And as you are suffering, it could be such a blessing and an encouragement to others in ways that you can't possibly imagine. In the light of eternity, I'm sure we'll get to see many of these things. Let me just read you another quote from Spurgeon. He said this, men will never become great in divinity. That's our understanding of God and so on until they become great in suffering. Ah, said Luther, affliction is the best book in my library. And let me add that the best leaf in the book of affliction is that blackest of all the leaves, the leaf uh, called heaviness, when the spirit sinks within us and we cannot endure as we could wish. And yet again, this heaviness is of essential use to a Christian if he would do good to others. There are none so tender as those who have been skinned themselves. Those who have been in the chamber of affliction know how to comfort those who are there. Do not believe that any man will become a physician unless he walks the hospitals. I am sure that no one will become a divine or become a comforter unless he lies in the hospital as well as walks through it and has to suffer himself. A great quote from Spurgeon, just highlighting what I was saying. 
Paul Washer also made this quote. He said, I would not trade the difficult years for all the prosperity in the world. God knows what each one of us must suffer in order to be conformed to the image of Christ. I can tell you now, in the light of eternity, we won't look back on this life and complain about the things that we have suffered. We will look back and we will rejoice. We will recognize then what God has been doing and why he's allowed these things. Even the children this morning, they're learning about Hannah. They're learning about her sufferings, but the joy that came to her and the blessing that her life became to the nation of Israel. Just think about Samuel and the life that he lived, the way he led that nation and prepared the way for the monarchy, for King David, ultimately. You know, what a life. And that didn't start with Samuel. That started with Hannah, with those tears that she wept before the altar, before in the the tabernacle. And so Peter rounds out the book. He says, to him be glory. Notice it's all about him. It's not about us. It's not about our position or whatever. It's to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he just says, by Sylvanius, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. I love the expression, the true grace. It's really the theme of this epistle, you know, that, that we can stand in the day of trial because of the grace of God. And, you know, it's following uh, possibly the next section we're going to look at, a personal annotations by Peter himself, just as Paul often allows somebody else to write the letter, like a secretary of Enuensis. Um, so Peter does the same thing here. And Sylvanus may be the same as Silas. Some scholars think it is. It's a, it was a common name, um, but it could be the one of the same person. Uh, Sylvanus, again, may have personally delivered the letter that we've just been studying through to the churches as per 1 Peter 1 in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. And guess what? This morning to us, because we have this record to encourage us. Then we just conclude, it says, to the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. And so does Marcus, my son. Uh, it's probably this church was the church truly that was in Babylon, uh, modern day uh, Iraq on the banks of the Euphrates there, uh, this Nestorian church that had been there for many, many years, really from from early days, um, the, the Christian world. Uh, some will try and tell you that this reference to Babylon is a veiled reference to Rome, to pagan Rome. I don't think there's any biblical basis for that. It's interesting that there's no biblical basis to suggest that Peter ever went to Rome. You know, and yet, of course, the Roman Catholic Church based what they believe on the fact that Peter was the first pope, which if he never went to Rome does kind of challenge that idea somewhat. Um, but those are kind of really side issues. We don't need to dwell on those things. Uh, just as an interesting aside, the, you know, Babylon was a major Jewish center at that time. So it's quite probable. Uh, and as this would indicate that Peter did go to Babylon to minister to the Jews who were there. Uh, we know that the Babylonian Talmud actually ranks over the Jerusalem Talmud. So these are just extra writings that they had to talk through explain the laws in the Tanakh their Old Testament this phrase elected you know that work election is the the sovereign uh, act of grace God has called us that he's elected us you know and whereby certain elect persons are chosen for distinctive service for him well you know guess what we've been elected and uh, we we looked at this right back at the start then just the the final part here is that um, Peter says uh, so does Marcus, my son. This, of course, is John Mark, uh, who writes Mark's Gospel. When we were studying Mark's Gospel a little while ago, we commented that Mark uh, seemingly uh, was at Peter's feet, as it were, listening to the things that Peter was saying about his time with Jesus. And Mark kind of like grabs a pen. He's like, I want to write this stuff down. 
And what Mark writes down from Peter's account becomes Mark's gospel. So in a sense, Mark's gospel is truly Peter's gospel. It's Peter's ideas, thoughts, teachings, the things that he experienced and went through. Uh, and Mark records it. Um, you remember the friction, of course, earlier on in the ministry with Paul and they separate uh, with Barnabas and so on. Mark goes off with Barnabas. But later, Paul makes the comment that Mark is profitable for me, that after writing this gospel, no doubt Paul was really blessed by this document that he could use and share with other people that just detailed that all that had gone on during Jesus' ministry. And clearly, Mark seems to have accompanied Peter in the latter years of Peter's ministry. And then finally, greets you one another with a kiss of love. And that word is agape, uh, agape. This is this unconditional love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus, amen. You know, the world often uses affection to say, what can I get? But Christians should say, what can I give? That's what really is the idea behind this, this kiss of love. You know, in certain cultures, they, they greet each other with a kiss and so on. You know, and this is, is more than just an outward act. This is an act of the heart. We should greet each other with that unconditional love. And then again, peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. You know, if you are in Christ, you will know peace. You know, with all the, the challenges, the trials, the frustrations, the disappointment, those things that the flesh would throw at us, those things that the devil would try and tempt us with, you know, put it all to one side. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let him direct your paths. And don't worry about position. Don't worry about promotion because it comes neither from the east or the west, but from the Lord. If the Lord is calling you into ministry of any type, let the Lord be the one to open the doors. Let him be the one to lead you. Don't try and become something you're not or do something before the Lord has finished his training with you. In the Lord's timing, everything that he wants to do in your life will be accomplished. Okay, let's uh, bow our hearts and pray. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we do pray that you impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, we want to be the people you want us to be. Help us not to, to try and jump ahead of you, Lord, to learn the lessons we read in Scripture, the likes of Abraham and of Moses and so many others, to be content with what you've given us, Lord, to be content with the boundaries you've set. And Lord, if you choose to give us a greater opportunity, a bigger field of ministry. Well, we praise you. But Lord, we thank you right now for the fields of ministry we already have in our homes, in our families. Lord, with our colleagues, with our, 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 the people we work with, the people we mix and mingle with. And of course, Lord, with each other to edify and encourage and submit to each other. Lord, we thank you for these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.